I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry. We invite anybody who does not have a church uh, to join us here at our campus studios. You can go to www.campus.com, hyphens in between the letters, to get our address if you're in the Salt Lake area. Now, if you have a church that you enjoy, stay with it, fine. But if you're at home and you wanna watch verse-by-verse uh, -verse teaching streaming, uh, you can go to the campus video on Sundays, 10 a.m. or 2.30, and you can get your church there. We pray, we sing the word of God a bit, we sit, reflect, and then we study the Bible, and then we get out of here and we uh, live our Christian life for the rest of the week. So come get equipped without price except for some time and learn of him and the graphics there to tell you how. You know, let me make a, an observation. When we were in the middle of the fire with going after the LDS church, we still are in many respects, but not as heavy as it was. Uh, the common responses the LDS defenders of the faith would constantly use with me were the same responses that Christian apologists use uh, in the very same way. So first, the LDS would never respond to everything that we would say in a show, for instance, or in a paper or in a book or in an article or something, interview. They would always just pick what could be uh, assailed and attack the one thing where I may have made a mistake or was an error. Uh, and so in other words, I could do a whole show on Joseph Smith uh, early life and say he was born in uh, December uh, 13th and, uh, and then give a whole show of facts that were unassailable but make a mistake on his birth date and they would do entire blogs on the fact that I made the mistake on the birth date is, is the point. And uh, the same thing happens uh, here. It's a common occurrence with evangelicals 
is we'll do an entire show on a, on a premise or a principle and that apologists or evangelicals will take a single thing where I'm wrong. I mean, I can be wrong on a lot of factors and they'll just focus on those, but they won't address the areas that I'm right. And the areas that I'm right do bear weight when it comes to issues like Trinity and salvation and all the issues that we've been talking about. Also, there's a common occurrence to attack the person, the ad hominem attacks, the LDS do that a lot. Uh, your character, your value as a believer, the LDS did it, the Christians uh, apologists and the Christian people on the blogs and the things, they do the same thing. They, they go after the person's character. And you know, I'm not at war with anybody in the body at all. Uh, not a pastor, not an apologist, not a scholar. I'm not at war with John Calvin. Uh, I talk about principles and, and things that are troubling to me. And the way I see it, if 10% of my insights are correct, I'm doing pretty good. And it's up to you to figure out what's right or what's wrong, but you know, it's not a personal thing. I'm not after you personally. I think that if you uh, proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior and the author and finisher of your faith, and there's no other way by which you can get to heaven, you're my brother or sister in the Lord, and I am not gonna judge you on your Trinitarian views and your other doctrines and things. I might disagree with you, but not with you as the person, an ad hominem attack. And then there was always, with the LDS, all Sean McCraney does is regurgitate what's already been written about Mormonism. All he's doing is talking about E.D. Uh, Howe wrote, or what this person wrote, you know? And uh, the Christian apologists do the same thing. And so, you know, with both sides thinking that it somehow makes their position more viable if I have taken from resources that I have discovered and used to make my arguments. Here's the thing. If a monkey a thousand years ago said something that's true, I'll recite it here, if it's true. I don't care if I originated it or I discovered it. That's how it's got to be. So why do you pick on the fact that I'm, I'm reciting something that another uh, uh, person has said? So what? That's how we all do that, really. I'm reciting what another person has said every time I quote the Bible. There's no shame in that. So I suppose my point is that in the game of apologetics, no matter what a person is defending or attacking, whether it be Mormonism or Christianity, it's all the same mindset. This ministry is not apologetically driven. I have said before, I'm not an apologist. I'm a researcher, I think about things, and I present them. And we're just trying to make sense of a lot of very nonsensical traditions, both from the LDS side and, uh, and some from the Christian debate. Our aim is to help people discover truth, explore, access it, look at it, and uh, if that can't be respected in the world of Christianity, I don't know what Christianity is. Is it just dogma? This is what it is, believe it, shut up? That's what Mormonism was. So I don't really understand that. Think about that, with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, who we love and worship and seek, we thank you for your son that makes all things possible in the human existence relative to abundant living and joy and salvation and eternal life. We thank you for his shed blood. We pray you'll be with our volunteers, our staff, people who are uh, uh, watching here in the studio audience, out there in uh, streaming land, or who will watch this program 
through the archives or on the new television station, whatever it is, Lord, open up eyes, soften hearts, forgive me when I'm wrong, and let's move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. In this ministry, in the Mormon Christian debate, there perhaps is no more important topic, to me at least, than a clear biblical understanding of our subject tonight and which will be our subject for the next few weeks. Spiritual rebirth, being born again. The Bible really refers to it as being born from above. That's what it really means in the Greek, being born from above. And is it repeated over and over again in a person's life? Is it the same for everybody, all experienced in the same way? Can people of all faiths have this experience? Who is and who has not been born again? Can another person tell? And on and on and on. Our first book, of course, was called Born Again Mormon. And uh, as from the get-go, we have believed that if we could focus on people being spiritually regenerated, that God, through his spirit, would take care of everything else in the Mormon's uh, convert's life. In fact, our first website was called bornagainmormon.com. The central focus of the ministry was and remains to this day for LDS people, aside from, I guess even in addition to their Mormonism, to experience Jesus firsthand, to be born again. And really, that's what we want of people of all walks and every clime and then to let the Holy Spirit guide their decisions and how they work things out with their family, their jobs, and the church they attend. In my heart, and from what I can deduce from Scripture, I don't think there's anything more important in an individual's life than if, when, how, where they are born again. Spiritual rebirth is the most single most important thing that could occur in an individual's life. Now, it's, that being said, it's not the only important thing in the Christian walk, but it certainly is the thing that launches everything into place. So with that, being born from above is such an important event in people's lives. There's a lot of talk about what it is and what it isn't, and there's a lot of obscurity. There's a lot of darkness. There are a lot of counterfeits. Uh, what William... Oh, what's his name? William James, in uh, his epic book on spirit, uh, uh, religious varieties of religious experience, I'm just recalling from memory, he writes about how almost all peoples uh, have rebirth experiences. I mean, the Hindus, the Muslims, Christians, the people who are most spiritually inclined will have spiritual regeneration uh, experiences in their life, and he cites them. And he studied these things. It's an epic book, but here's the deal. The question is, what is it that you are born again from? You know, is, I mean, there's people who probably experience rebirth when they get really steeped in, let's say, AA, not associated at all with Christ. AA gives them new life, and their devotion is to AA. So really the question is not just rebirth. It's are you regenerated by and through faith on the shed blood of Jesus Christ? So we're going to begin tonight with what Mormonism says, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to move on to the beliefs of what failing Christianity says, and then we are going to wrap it up with what I would suggest the Bible says about spiritual rebirth. Regarding Mormon 
soteriology. I'm going to break down our analysis of it by first discussing this sort of slippery slope Mormons talk about when they talk about being saved. I'll explain that in a second. And then after that, we're going to go on and talk about how the LDS actually define and in their case, practice spiritual rebirth. That's right. They practice spiritual rebirth. And then we will wrap the whole thing up by taking a look at how Mormon doctrine then sort of dovetails in with the regenerative experience and introduces to their members a progressive model towards perfection and in which, in their opinion, leads to exaltation or becoming a god, which my LDS neighbor today told me, that's God with a capital G, Sean. So uh, just to let you know. I'm in, including in this last part of the topic of soteriology because perfection and getting the highest level of the celestial kingdom is really, truly the only thing that matters to the faithful LDS. Everything else, it's there, it's in place, but only to the highest degree is really what the goal is. Aside from that, most faithful Latter-day Saints really don't give much thought. So more on that in a minute. First, let's talk about this salvation experience in LDS terms. To a Christian, salvation, soter in the Greek, S-O-T-E-R in the Greek, uh, soteriology, salvation. To a Christian, it simply means being saved from sin and death. Being saved from and then being saved to God and eternal life with him. Saved from sin and death, the second death, by the way, and not physical death. We will be saved from that through resurrection, but you still experience physical death. But it's saved from sin and death, second death, and to life with God after this life. That's salvation. I've been saved, okay? So when a Christian says something like, I was saved, they are speaking of the fact that they have received God's answer to their sin, Christ shed blood, and they, when they die, will ex escape death and hell, and they will enter into a life with God. To a Mormon, however, the phrase saved or salvation means a couple things, and it's very intriguing. First of all, some Latter-day Saints will say, and in fact, leaders have said, that being saved is simply being resurrected from the grave. They will say that this is God's, this is Christ's free gift. This is grace, that you receive the resurrection. You do nothing to earn it, you, except you came to this earth, and you receive a body after this life. That resurrection is the gift. It's the free gift. It's the grace that God gives you, okay? That's the first sense of salvation. So the LDS teach that all mankind receive this gift of grace in and through and by the atonement of Christ. The LDS teach that. And this is the unmerited gift bestowed upon all humanity. Because of this, it's important to make sure when you're talking to a Mormon, when you're talking about being saved, you look at them and you say, now what are we talking about? You're talking about, I would believe all men are saved, or I believe that salvation comes by. What are we talking about? Are you talking about resurrection? No, 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 no. I'm talking about uh, going on after this, okay? So clarify your terms. 
All right, in the second LDS sense, which is the much broader sense in the way most LDS see it, to be saved means to enter, okay? So if you want to know how a Latter-day Saint believes they will enter into the only heaven that matters, the celestial kingdom, the third article of faith says, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, okay? So we can see very clearly from this definition that the equivalent of Christian salvation within Mormonism is obtained, made possible through the atonement of Christ by a LDS member's obedience to LDS laws and LDS ordinances of the gospel. That is how they enter in to that place in heaven where Christians believe it's just by faith. Where do the LDS get this idea? Jesus said to Nicodemus, a man must be born from above to even see the kingdom of heaven. And that the spirit behind this rebirth, Jesus said, is like the wind. No man can control it. It goes where it wants to go and it will bring whoever in it, uh, that it wants to bring. But um, without our ability to uh, lasso it or direct it, that's John 3, 8. But Joseph Smith Jr., the founder of Mormonism, stepped in and said in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 162, being born again comes by the Spirit of God through ordinances. Okay? That's a very Catholic view as well, by the way. Uh, through the ordinances that the Mormon church gives that is what it means to be born again by the work of the Spirit. You've got to receive the ordinances. In other words, where Jesus described being born again as a super, supernatural act of God, where the Holy Spirit swoops in wind-like and dwells in a man, Joseph Smith reeled the whole experience back in, and he trapped it within the four walls of Mormonism and said, no. This religion says that it's through obedience to the laws and ordinances within these four walls that spiritual rebirth occurs. It would be like, to give you another example in the physical, it would be like the federal government saying, listen, we will tell women when they are going to give birth. We will determine that. And so when a woman's pregnant, the federal government says, okay, Come on into our four walls. We're going to inject you with Pitocin. It's going to engage you in delivery, and you will give birth, and that we will stamp as really, truly being born again. Uh, if a woman just radically decides to go into labor on her own, well, that couldn't really be birth, and the child really isn't real. I mean, that's kind of what institutionalized rebirth is saying, that we have to tell you how to do it. Here's the laws, here's the ordinances, follow this, and then rebirth occurs. It would be ridiculous, right? Well, that's what the LDS believe about rebirth. It is in the hands of the church administrating their laws and their ordinances. Articulating Joseph Smith's original teachings, 10th president of the LDS church, Joseph Fielding Smith said in Doctrines of Salvation, 2, 223, through baptism and confirmation, 
people are born again and thus come back into spiritual life and through their continued obedience to the end, they shall be made partakers of the blessings of eternal life in the celestial kingdom of God. So to give this LDS counterfeit of rebirth greater clarity, let me kind of go through and reteach it using my own words. In order to do this, I have to take as many elements that I can of their whole belief system to kind of help make sense to you as to why they do it the way they do it. So let's quickly look at the Smithian worldview of salvation. Latter-day Saints teach that all human beings are born literal spirit children of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, okay? If you live on this earth, we're born and given a body here, you are the offspring of heavenly father and heavenly mother pre-existent life. In effect, every human being, according to Mormon doctrine, is a spirit relative to, uh, related to Jesus Christ, who too is a spirit child of heavenly father and heavenly mother. That's why the LDS refer to Christ as their elder brother, because he too was a spirit child who came down, got a body, and that is what the origins of man is in Mormonism. Well, coming from this pre-existent state as his spirit children, all human beings enter into bodies of flesh and bone, and we face trials and tests and difficulties that Heavenly Father allows Satan to perpetrate among us. The LDS concur with the Bible that every human being fails in these tests, okay? They don't teach that you're perfect. They teach failure. And because of that, God sent his son to die, on the, die uh, shed blood in the garden, and then die on the cross for the redemption of man if man takes advantage of it through repentance and receiving the ordinances and laws of the Mormon gospel. Because they are born spirit children of Heavenly Father and Mother, the emphasis on becoming a new creature, on spiritual rebirth that happens by the Holy Spirit moving in of its own accord and working is, is kind of not even really touched on. Except in the Book of Mormon, which was an early Christian-like book that Joseph Smith first produced, all his stuff afterward are really what Mormonism is about. But the Book of Mormon was more like Christian-like, and in that, he describes the mighty change. That reflects in the t context of the Book of Mormon what spiritual rebirth is about in the Bible. But they have gotten away from that in practice, and you very rarely will hear ever about the mighty change or Mormons experiencing the mighty change or spiritual rebirth in the Mormon church because they believe they were born children of God. When a Mormon child turns eight, they are deemed to be accountable now for the sins and the uh, transgressions that they will commit. Prior to that, the accountability is upon the head of the parent. Uh, and so what happens at the age of eight or to anybody who converts to Mormonism over the age of eight, they are baptized in water by immersion and they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands by a Latter-day Saint who has the proper priesthood authority. Those two things, really three things, being water baptized, confirmed a member of the church, and receiving the Holy Spirit, by, Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands by a priesthood member of the LDS church, that gains them entrance, entrance 
into the highest degree of the celestial, into the celestial kingdom, not the highest degree, just into the gate, okay? Those two ordinances are, are the entry-level ordinances, and they also serve to make that eight-year-old child or a convert over eight a member of the church. Because the LDS teach that all people sin, the means to overcome sin is offered by LDS members entering into a covenantal, covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? This happens when the person accepts to be water baptized and there they take on covenants at the water baptism and then they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. In receiving these ordinances, the LDS teach that they have taken on the name of Christ and which is sort of synonymous in an institutional way with being born again, sort of, and is synonymous what the founder of their faith said that spiritual rebirth comes through ordinances, okay? So what happens, to make that a little clearer, is you have a child who turns eight, they get baptized, they get confirmed, they receive the Holy Spirit. They now are in the, in the mode of gaining exaltation. They are now in the mode of renewing their baptism every week to clean up the sin in their life each week so that they can progress toward uh, exaltation in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. So to remain faithful to this perfunctory and institutionalized spiritual rebirth, the member now uh, must live to be worthy of the Holy Spirit that was given to them as a gift by the laying on of hands. And as a result, every week, the baptized and confirmed member partakes in what the LDS call the sacrament. And that is water and bread, which is blessed by 16-year-old priests who just doing God knows what the night before and is handed out by 12-year-old boys doing God knows what while they were sitting on the bench. And those guys deliver these elements to baptized members and, and when the priests bless it, they remind the members of the covenants they took upon themselves when they were baptized, okay? And that's to eat and drink in remembrance of the broken body or the shed blood of Christ, to witness to God that they will always remember him. These are the baptismal covenants. Uh, promise that they will keep his commandments, and then uh, they do this as a means to always have his spirit to be with them, okay? So the priest says that prayer, and everybody in there is reminded, okay, that's what I agreed to when I was water baptized. And they are, the, and so, as a means and in an effort to always have his spirit be with them, the LDS believe it's incumbent to remain worthy to have that spirit, okay? I'm gonna clear this all up if it's getting convoluted for you. So instead of being baptized and confirmed and receiving the Holy Ghost and the church saying, go on now, let God guide you and let God lead you, et cetera, et cetera, there's a mandate on every single member that they must constantly repent, okay? There is a repentance process that goes on on a daily, weekly basis in preparation for taking the sacrament at the end of the week and renewing their baptismal covenants and getting cleansed again so that they can go through the process all over again. So let me give you an example, okay? 
John converts to Mormonism uh, by the missionaries. He's single. He's 24 years old. He feels really good after his baptism and confirmation because the, the missionaries told him that he would be cleansed of his sin when he's baptized. They would be washed away. Okay? So he believes that. They believe the baptism of water washes away the sin. And, and so a week after his baptism, he goes to church, and during the sacrament service, he takes and eats the blessed bread and water, and he renews the promises he made when he was baptized into the church. Yes, he coveted a little bit the week earlier, and he did some other light sinning, but he uses this time as he's sitting in sacrament meeting before the bread and water gets there to reflect upon his sin, what he has done, to go through the process of repentance if they're light sins, and then to ingest those elements and say, Lord, I will always remember you, I will keep your commandments, let your spirit be with me always. And by doing that, he experiences, so to speak, another baptism of sorts, where his sins are washed away by and through partaking of that sacrament service. Week after week, this is the LDS program for its baptized members. Come to sacrament service, repent, renew, move on. Repent, renew, move on, okay? Uh, people have pointed out, you know, they are literally willingly taking that sacrament and promising to keep his commandments, but they are uh, knowingly that they are not going to do that. So it's really kind of a strange game that they play, a mind game. Yes, I'm gonna play this holiness thing where I've repented, okay. Oh, I really do feel bad for yelling at my sister this morning. Water, bread, okay, absolved, okay, I'm gonna try. And then within an hour, they're doing it again. And it's this perfunctory, institutionalized, religious service that they have embraced to cleanse themselves of the sin and have the spirit with them. So this is the process by which the LDS member is able to remain worthy enough to have the spirit with them. Again, through repeated weekly repentance, renewing the baptismal covenant, taking the sacrament uh, as long as they are worthy there's some leeway in there, and then moving on into the week to be, uh, uh, hopefully do better. Now, you can see the cycle that Mormons put their people in. It's, it's a cycle where allegiance to Mormonism is required. You have to have allegiance to Mormonism. They have the ordinances that you need in order to take that sacrament, have it blessed, be baptized, all this stuff. And then you have to go to the Mormon church every single week because that's when you get the cleansing of your spirit for the sins you committed during the week. All right? They must receive the LDS baptism and gift of the Holy Spirit. They must be worthy to partake of the weekly LDS sacrament. And they must attend the weekly LDS service to ingest the bread and water the LDS administrator has as a means to renew their baptismal covenants. You see, part and parcel of being born again, which the LDS believe is a processional experience. It's not an immediate event. It happens every day. It happens every week, they teach. Not a single event, as Christ describes it, through birth, which everyone knows when a woman goes into labor, it's a single event. You're not there week in and week out giving birth. That's why Jesus used birth to describe being born from above. So... In other words, the baptized member, in order to keep the gift of the Holy Ghost that was given to them, they must work to have that spirit, and that work comes by repenting. And it comes by repenting in the LDS way. 
which is, and we have a, we have a, diag- we have a little list for you here. There's, we call it the R scarf. You recognize the sin. You feel sorrow for committing the sin. You confess the sin to God and to others you may have harmed. You ask forgiveness of God and to those you have harmed, including the church, if that's necessary. You make restitution for the sin and you forsake the sin. We use this uh, and call it the R scarf method on my LDS mission. According to LDS leaders, all points of R scarf have to be completed in order for true repentance to occur and for the person to then be clean and, and be worthy to have the Holy Spirit to be with them. So let's say John eats the sacrament on Sunday, but Monday morning he gossips terribly about a coworker. So over the week he recognizes that this was a sin. He feels sorrow in his heart for having committed it. He confesses it to God and maybe to the person that he gossiped about. He asks God for forgiveness and forgiveness of the person that he told the stories about at work. He begins to make restitution for the sin. Now, I don't know how you do that with gossip, but let's say that he tries to speak really well of her throughout the day. And then uh, he uh, forsakes gossiping anymore, okay? Then comes Sunday and full of contrition, John sits and the bread is brought to him, the water is brought to him and he renews the fact and he all of those things have happened and he's repented and he renews what happened at baptism and he's symbolically washed again by partaking and ingesting of those those elements in doing so John is rebaptized and it's all possible because of the atonement of Christ all right you with me that's rebirth to the LDS people one more scenario to include Suppose John, after repenting for gossiping on Sunday, meets the local LDS hottie at Monday night family home evening and gets jiggy with it, and, and that happens among young people. And so he has sexual relations with this woman outside of marriage. In the LDS world, this is a sin that cannot be forgiven until it has been repented of through proper channels meaning through John's local priesthood leader or bishop. Because the sin is so serious in God's eyes and because another person is involved and because the church's name has been in effect harmed, stronger action must be taken by the bishop to ensure that John really takes his repentance seriously. And so again, we return to the R scar. First, John has to recognize that doing the hokey pokey outside of marriage is prohibited. Now, by the way, just to let you know a little insight, when I was LDS and I was young working at ZCMI, I was surrounded by a bunch of returned missionaries who were not married. They knew in the Mormon temple they had covenanted that they would not have any sexual intercourse with anybody outside of marriage. You cannot believe the games these guys played where they avoided sexual intercourse, but they did all kinds of other activities so that they could go in and tell their bishop, no, I, I don't have sexual intercourse. I'm keeping my temple covenants, you see. This is what legalism does. The, the uh, LDS church later changed it and says have no sexual relations. 
But when I first went through, and when you create a law, you find ways to get around the law, and that was what happened then. So John has to feel sorrow for the activity. He must confess to God and to the proper priesthood authority, and now some leeway comes into play when it comes to confessing to the proper priesthood authority. Some LDS members believe they have to confess everything to their bishop, and some bishops want to hear everything, and others believe that only the major sins like fornication, adultery, murder, habitual self-indulgence, some bishops would say any self-indulgence, breaking the word of wisdom, crimes of any nature, uh, besmirching church leaders' names, those things are serious enough where you have to go to the bishop. There's a list of those things. But outside of this stuff, most LDS do not run to the bishop with this stuff. They handle the repenting on their own through the week, through uh, the spirit that's in them, and through the sacrament. John must then ask forgiveness from God, from the girl, from the bishop for embarrassing the church. He represents the church. He's a, he's a judge in Israel. Then John must make restitution for the act. How do you do that with sex? I don't know. And, and you know, do you do the acts in reverse? Uh, but in Mormonism, the ability to make proper restitution is the gauge with which they weigh the seriousness of a sin. If you cannot perform the R scarf, including restitution, it automatically throws the behavior into a much more egregious sin because restitution uh, can't be made, you see. So, um, and then there's the forsaking of the sin. This is another reason the bishop steps in. John has proven that he is not willing to uh, avoid serious sins, so the bishop steps in and he helps John along overcome this sin by monitoring and refusing to let him have the sacramental elements until enough time has passed by where it shows that John has truly been contrite, truly has repented, and is now worthy again to receive this, the, the sacramental elements, uh, which is part of the, the culmination of the total repentance process. John has lost the privilege for a time. And so, uh, in the eyes of the LDS, John has either lost the Holy Spirit or a lot of it. He's become unworthy, he's become tainted, and it's gonna take a process that the bishop will oversee to bring him back through repentance and time before he can go and renew his covenants. Time must pass. John must prove that he's not going to partake in that sin again, proving to God himself and the bishop that he truly is sorry for the fornication and that he will in the future honor his covenants made at baptism and from sin. So let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. While the operators are clearing your calls, I actually have a couple more points. Uh, if John cannot stop his couch activities he might be subject to disciplinary action against him by the church leaders. There's temporary probation, I believe. There is disfellowshipment, and there is excommunication. Bishop Earl, is there anything else? Did he leave? That's it. That's it, yeah. And so partaking the LDS sacraments not allowed in the event of any of these things, typically. You go into the sacrament meeting, you sit, the bread and water is passed by. You're not renewing your baptismal covenants. You haven't really fully completed the repentance process. Additionally, if an LDS person finds himself in prison, they cannot take those elements either, which is uh, uh, part of uh, the spiritual rebirth process. Now understand, all that we have just talked about are the basics 
They're the fundamentals of being an active Latter-day Saint who is supposedly experiencing processional rebirth through partaking the sacrament and eating those elements. Because it borrows so heavily uh, processionalism from masonry of taking bad men and making them good and taking good men and making them better, uh, Mormonism is really all about progress in the name of God. So once these gospel essentials of baptism and the Holy Ghost are in place and repentance and renewing covenants at baptism are there, the LDS believe they've entered into the way, into the lowest kingdom of the lowest level of the celestial kingdom. They've entered the gate, baptism. They're inside that level now. Now they have to maintain, perform, and continue on this course higher and higher and higher and higher performance until they reach somewhat of a, what might be considered a state of perfection. I know some of them believe they can reach that. And there's so much more to expect. We're gonna cover those higher, higher things that are truly all part of soteriology and Mormonism and uh, when we get back here next week. And then after that, we'll get into the, um, the Christian side. Now, you might find yourself laughing if uh, you're watching about all the stuff the LDS uh, believe a person must go through in order to be born again. I gotta tell you, when it comes to a lot of Christianity, pastors approach these things in very similar ways. There, 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 there's many churches that will approach the same uh, stuff in the same way. And it might not be as extreme, and it might not be connected to taking communion. Catholic Church might, I don't know. But it certainly is uh, uh, alive and well in the mindset of many Christians today that there must be a repentance, there must be a time past from the sin to the contrition to the repentance to the forgiveness. There's all these things in place. So, so don't get high on your horse and think, wow, the Mormonism, Mormons really has it all wrong. They certainly have it wrong through it being through uh, uh, laws and ordinances. But boy, you know, we kind of do a law and ordinance thing with our own too, and I can't wait to get to what the, I believe the Bible really says. Okay, we got an email from Michelle. Oh, wait, before we do that, we have four CDs of music that we uh, offer to our viewing audience. Go to our website, take a look. For Christ is the end.
going to Eric in Peru. Eric, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? You're on the air, my brother. Hey, how's it going, John? Um, from, from Lima, Peru, calling you again. I got uh, three questions that uh, talking to another uh, brother. Uh, they're from, uh, they're Catholics. They uh, arise me and, uh, well, they have their own Bible. And they have around seven books that we don't have. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and then the Bible in Revelation says that nobody can add or remove anything from the Bible. So they, he accused me that we are the one that uh, we uh, uh, distort the Bible. Then my second question Wait, let's, is, uh, Eric, let's address that one first. Okay. Yeah, the Catholics, they include all the apocryphal books, don't they? Is it the apocryphal books? Uh, in between the Old and New Testament, is that right? Yes. My, yeah. The staff says yes. But listen, Revelation was put at the end of the New Testament. It's debatable whether that was put there because it should have been there. I think it, if it was the Holy Spirit that led the compilers of the Bible to put it there, I think it's a good thing. But when, when the writer of Revelation says, don't add or take away from the contents of, uh, of this book, that writer was speaking of, John was speaking of the, the Revelation only. He was not, uh, okay. yeah. Yeah, he wasn't speaking of the whole Bible. And the reason I make that a point is because uh, Moses says the same thing in Deuteronomy. Don't add or take away from the, uh, this book. And so we know a lot of things came after Deuteronomy. So it's, it's okay. Don't worry about that one. What's the next question? Oh, okay. Well, because that, that happened when I asked them about the uh, Assumption of Mary. And it's not in the Bible. So that's why he, uh, uh, this person answered with that. My second question would be, uh, also is mentioning about the 12 foundations and uh, every foundation will be with one name of the apostle. But uh, we know that we, there were 12 apostles, plus Paul will be 13 apostles. Um, so, here, here's, the way I, here's the way I would explain that, Eric. The foundation of uh, heaven, spoken in Revelation, says the 12 names of the apostles will be written on those pillars, right? Yes. Okay. Now listen, when Jesus, before he ascended, he told his apostles, Judas has, has died already, so there's 11, and he told his apostles, go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't do anything, wait, and the Holy Spirit's going to come and just hang on. Well, they went, but Peter got anxious and said, you know, while we're sitting around waiting, why don't we replace... Uh, uh, Judas with another apostle and somebody who has witnessed everything. And so they took two guys and they cast lots. That's an Old Testament method that went away with once the Holy Spirit fell, which Jesus told them to wait for, but they didn't. And they cast lots and it fell on Matthias. And so Matthias became the 12th apostle, right? Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, then, then Paul comes along and the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus chooses Paul. I believe Paul was the 12th apostle whose name is written on those pillars. The other apostles, so to speak, that are mentioned in Acts, like Barnabas and other people, those were not official 
witnesses of Christ and his life and teachings. But Paul and the other 11 were. So I explain it that way. I don't believe Matthias was one. I think Paul was the 12th. And anybody afterward were called apostles because they were sent. But they were not apostles in the sense of being special witnesses. Because Barnabas certainly didn't walk with Christ and learn from him. Okay, okay. Because uh, I, I've been watching your, your programs from a long time ago, and you always uh, quote a lot of the Bible. What would be uh, the future and characteristics of being a, one apostle? And uh, Paul was not there when Jesus started doing all his uh, miracles and preaching. Paul was not there? Yeah, he was he didn't uh see Christ since he was baptized and the whole <clears throat> Right. But Paul was taken into the Sinai Desert Sinai Peninsula and learned for three years from Christ himself after he had the vision. So he was a witness to Christ's resurrection and and uh, that's the whole point. Okay. And my last question, Sean, is uh, um well, I go around in uh, in this big city, and then I, I meet all the time Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon, Catholics. And uh, I mentioned that to my pastor, and he said that they are not our brothers. He said that not to talk to them. But I was a little confused because and the Bible uh, says that we should talk to them and put them in the right way. But my pastor said that they are not our brothers. Uh, I, I don't think I, I think I listen to the Holy Spirit. I think uh, if you are huh? le if you are led, uh, Eric, to talk to people, Catholics and Mormons there in Lima, Peru, I think you should do yes. it. Yes, do it. All right, cool. Hey, so, Sean, thanks a lot. I know you like my accent. I, you know, I love your accent. It's very romantic, <laughs> but I can't always understand you. Can you understand me? I love course I do, of course. <laughs> Love you, my brother. Love me too. Bye, Sean. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. <laughs> At least he has a good, good uh, attitude about it. Because uh, I obviously show I can't understand him. Listen, from Michelle. Uh, Sean, I've realized the LDS Church is not true. I realized this. I read the New Testament. I was changed. I fell to the ground in joy a few times. I know that no man <coughs> could have been the example that Jesus is in the Bible. I'm hoping to get your perspective. I was reading Job, and a question came to mind. How the beginning, okay, what she's asking here in a longer way is, in the beginning of Job, it says how the angels of God were uh, uh, around him and that Satan came up amidst them. And how did the writer know this, is her question. And uh, I would say that the writer knew it like the, all the Old Testament writers knew things. They were inspired. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. And the writer of Job, if it wasn't Job himself, they, they wrote down what the Holy Spirit told them. Now, a lot of people think that the story is metaphorical. I think it's real. And the Holy Spirit told them, this is the situation, here's the story, write it. Now, you might say, well, that's difficult. In fact, the, uh, Michelle goes on and says, and how about, how about Genesis? Nobody was there when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nobody was there. How did the writer of Genesis, who was Moses, know all the stuff about the creation. Again, it has to be by and through the inspired, that means the God-breathed word to the writer, Moses, as he recounted 
at, at the, uh, the creation experience. So Michelle, that's how I would explain it. That when Jesus was on earth and he had taught his 12 apostles, he said, go to Jerusalem, hang on and do your work and remember the Holy Spirit will fall and, and it will bring all things to your remembrance. And so when they wrote the gospels 30 years later, which is a criticism by atheists and stuff about Christianity, the Holy Spirit brought to their memory of what they had seen and told them what to, to write. So I hope that uh, helps. Uh, from Misty, I was wondering, Sean, about your opinion on the Bible's interpretation of not marking your body by any means. I am recently a born-again Christian and have a lot of tattoos, and I plan on getting more. Can you please tell me uh, your thoughts on this? Uh, my thoughts on this are very liberal. There are people who disagree. In the Old Testament, we know that uh, the high priests and the priests were not to mark on themselves, not to get tattoos, because that was what the pagans did, and God was separating out for himself a nation that would bring forth the oracles of God and the Messiah. And there was a lot of legalism that went with the nation of Israel, so those were contextually applied. But when it comes to Christians now, I believe there is absolute total liberty in Christ in every way. I believe in every way. Now, when I say that, it has to fall into the context of love and faith. So I don't think getting a tattoo shows a lack of faith or shows a lack of love. So I don't have a problem with it. Now, sleeping with my neighbor, I say everything, that would show a lack of faith in God and that would show a lack of love to the, my neighbor and to my wife. So we can't just run licentiously around and do what we want. But all these superfluous things, what we look like, what we eat, what we dress ourselves with, where we have plated hair and gold or not, whether we're poor or rich, all of those things are a subset to what goes on in the heart, faith and love. Hope that helps Misty. Um, Kristen asks, where, what are the works James talks about in James chapter two? This is the one that's oft quoted by the Mormons. Faith without works is dead. They go on and on. Now we've talked about this several times on the show, but bottom line, the works that he is speaking of is loving God and loving uh, your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's speaking of. I can prove it contextually by the examples that James uses, but let me just put it to you this way. The works that he speaks of is love. Faith without love is dead. It's agape love defined by 1 Corinthians 13. It's the fruit of the spirit is love, okay? And that love is described in 1 Corinthians 13 as being patient and kind and long-suffering and all those things, right? Doesn't boast of itself. That's what the fruit is. That's what the works are. And it's the Holy Spirit working on you. You have your faith, the Holy Spirit working on you to die to yourself. That says be impatient. That says don't suffer long. That says be unkind. That says do all the things that 1 Corinthians uh, tells you. Uh, uh, I got lost. But in any case, it's not works on humanitarian issues per se. It can lead to that because you have faith in God and you wanna please him and because you love your neighbor and love God and you wanna help those who are suffering, certainly it can by all means do that and that's definitely a thing. But agape love is death to the self-will. Agape love is death to spiritual um, uh, 
it's spiritual increase. It's an increase of spiritual love. It's, it's putting God ahead of uh, yourself. And it's putting neighbor ahead of yourself. Religions will take your efforts and they will parlay them into works that have to do with uh, doing. And that will, again, play out if you're loving, but it doesn't necessarily mean the doing. We talk about this a lot here at campus. So understand that your faith will be manifested by love, and love is manifested by the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is described in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 13. Those are the works. Uh, from Patrick in Arizona, is the Book of Mormon a good tool to bring LDS to the real Christ? Uh, there's been a debate about uh, over the years that whether you take their Book of Mormon, because it's essentially in most ways a Christian uh, text, fiction, but text, and use it to show them in their own Book of Mormon uh, who Christ is, uh, I would say absolutely ridiculous. Um, we have a Bible. You know, you have a Bible. It's perfectly good. Now, if you think that the, the Holy Spirit is going to work better through the Book of Mormon, that doesn't say much about your opinion of the Bible. Now, I know it's a, it's a theory and it's a, a method that people use. It's a tool. If it works for you, I'm not going to say, you know, it's a waste. I would never do it. I want to show them I have no uh, interest at all in the Book of Mormon. I want them to know what a piece of fiction it is and how that book, the introductory drug to Mormonism, has led them down the primrose path to embrace uh, 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 temples and all the other stuff that they embrace. And so uh, I would say, uh, Patrick in Arizona, no, I don't believe the Book of Mormon is a good uh, ministerial tool to the LDS. And we have calls online. I'm sorry, but we don't have them cleared through. I just want to end. I want to make a pitch to you. And the pitch is this. Jesus Christ, that's the pitch. Nothing more, nothing less. All sold out for him who came, the word made flesh. He lived a sacrificial life because he loved God and because he loved you and I. He's the real McCoy. He's the real deal. Not a man, not me, not a pastor, not a church, not a group. None of that stuff. It's all Christ Jesus, who now we know by and through his Holy Spirit, that he sends to those who believe. Let the Holy Spirit guide you in your life. Like our caller, Eric from Peru, he wanted to know, my pastor says, don't go out and talk to the Catholics and the Mormons. But I feel like I should. I want to. Do it. You know, let the Holy Spirit guide you. Get free from the shackles of religion and organized religion that just wants to harness your power and use it to their own good. Go and forget religion and get a relationship with him. And then gather together with believers, worship, do all those things in a good Bible teaching church. But don't ever let that church get in between you and our Lord. We will see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a 